Hello, everyone. I would like to welcome you to Kaijin's webinar on Is Your Clinical NGS Lab Evidence Powered? A Step Every Genetic and Molecular Testing Lab Should Be Doing with Sequencing Data, which will be presented by Dr. Rupert Yip. My name is Mary Ann, and I'm your host for today's webinar. Before we begin the presentation, we have a few housekeeping issues to go over. First, can you please find the chat box on your GoToWebinar panel and let me know if the audio is working and that you can hear me clearly. You can just type in hi or hello. Okay, thank you for responding. All attendees will be in listen-only mode today to avoid any background noise during the presentation. If you experience any connection issues, such as you can't see the slides or can't hear the audio, please type in the chat box to let us know. In addition, you can use this chat box to submit your questions and comments throughout the webinar, and our presenter will have time to answer these at the end of the presentation during our Q&A session. So today we're joined by Dr. Rupert Yip. Dr. Yip is the Global Product Manager for Hereditary Disease Solutions at Kyogen Digital Insights. He oversees the Human Gene Mutation Database, HDMD, Ingenuity Variant Analysis, IVA, and Kyogen Clinical Insights, QCI, for Hereditary Disease Solutions. Now I'll hand the presentation over to Rupert. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks everyone for taking time out of your busy day uh, to join this webinar. I'd like to take this time to uh, introduce um, two uh, audiences to our new release of QCI Interpret. Uh, this is a release that just came out last week uh, for existing users of QCI Interpret. Um, I hope you'll find some new and, and powerful features uh, that are made available through this release. For folks who are new to QCI Interpret, welcome. Uh, and I hope you'll be able to understand uh, what some of the unique features that QCI can bring to your um, laboratory testing uh, capabilities. So as you know, with um, the advent of uh, and broad availability of uh, NGS-based testing. Um, a lot of testing now is, is available, uh, but particularly for hereditary disease uh, testing, um, there's really four major challenges that's involved with uh, routine testing. Uh, first and foremost is the scientific complexity, which includes uh, knowledge of genetic diseases, so understanding whether mutation, or disease, uh, what the relationship between the, de the gene and the disease is. Um, oftentimes, a lot of the uh, undiagnosed diseases are a manifestation of a um, complex of phenotypes rather than just one main phenotype. Um, there's also modes of inheritance and segregations of um, mutations that one needs to consider. You then have to understand what the um, zygosity and the penetrance of that particular mutation is and whether this mutation co-occurs with other mutations. 
uh, you also have to consider that you know this is a you know a rare disease. Uh, this mutation probably occurs in a rare portion, a smaller portion of the population. So you need to look at variant frequency. And then finally, once you've identified um, candidate variants that are causal for disease, you have to understand the biological variants of, of that detected variant. And then for cancer detection, uh, you want want to understand, you know, the, the tumor uh, fraction of that particular mutation in order to understand the significance uh, of that mutation. So really, um, the idea is that a lot of this NGS testing, especially for exome or genome mutation, a lot of these observed variants are, are new and often not a lot of background information available. With that, there's also operational scale where um, when you do sequence uh, these samples and you've got sometimes millions of variants to go through, uh, the interpretation now becomes the bottleneck where it can take days or weeks to interpret uh, an exome. And part of that is because it takes a lot of time to do the due diligence to classify the variants. Um, and often variant scientists can't know everything. And so they have to do a lot of lookup of the information. And it can take somewhere between 20 minutes to three hours to assess variants. Um, there's also compliance. Um, there are CAP-CLIA um, guidelines and um, certifications to be had. Um, one also needs to be cognizant of security and privacy concerns. Um, and then the FDA has already issued guidance, but not yet rules on, on um, LDTs. So to be able to comply with all these uh, rules and regulations um, is a challenge uh, whenever you're introducing a new test market. And finally, you know, you're in the business of, of making this a sustainable model, so reimbursement. So for reimbursement to happen, oftentimes uh, requires a demonstrated utility of the test, that there's uh, positive outcomes and that this test is um, differentiated in the market so that uh, you're able to introduce a, a novel test versus a, a me too test. And then finally, you know, lack of reimbursement will restrict access to the testing as well. So today though, um, I'm going to focus on a very specific portion of that workflow. Uh, the workflow starts from the patient sample uh, you generate a library against the, the uh, nucleic acid from that sample. You sequence that library. You generate raw data. That raw data is analyzed to generate a VCF file, a variant call file. Um, this variant call file can be up to millions of variants. You then need to triage those variants down to just the interesting variants in order for you to do the due diligence on only those few variants. So today we'll just focus on this portion of that workflow. Um, and specifically around how to streamline uh, the review of scientific literature and external databases in order to do that due diligence. I'll talk about how uh, QCI can help with the annotation and triaging of those variants, um, talk a bit about some of the algorithms used um, to automate the uh, expert curation of the variants as well as the ranking of the uh, candidate variants. So variant triaging is, is essentially that where you're taking um, the millions of variants down to just the ones that you want to do the due diligence on. Because obviously, if you're going to spend you know, 20 minutes to three hours on a variant, you can't be doing that for millions. Um, and, but you can do it when it's down to a handful. 
So typically the folks, the way folks do this is um, they reduce from millions through uh, various um, filtering categories where you say, well, show me only those variants that are rare because presumably if I'm looking at rare disease, I'm only interested in rare variants. Of those, show me that are um, likely to have an effect on protein. And of those, uh, show me those that are consistent with the genotype that I'm interested in, such as, you know, the type of inheritance, you know, whether it's a compound head uh, and so forth. And then of those, show me those that are biologically related to the disease that I'm interested in. And so these then narrow down to the ones um, that you're interested in. But um, most labs will go in this order of triaging from down to millions down to the handful that they're interested in. Now, in order to do that, um, it's a fairly tedious process where you might have a variant call file with um, you know tens, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of variants. You might even have like a trio of um, VCF files where you're looking at the family members versus the proband. With that, you might have a total of, you know, on the order of millions of variants. You might also have some metadata associated with these samples, such as the relationship and phenotype associated. Um, and then you might then use that information to see if there are other known clinical cases that are uh, similar to the one you're interpreting. And so you'll go to databases such as ClinVar and NCBI to try and look up um, like cases. You might then, you know, given the evidence that you have, um, make sure that you interpret those variants according to uh, society guidelines such as ACMG. Um, based on those guidelines, you might want to rule out variants based on uh, population frequency. So you go to databases such as NOMAD or 1000 Genomes, um, and then you might want to, you know, look up the relevancy of those variants through browsers, uh, tools such as UCSC Genome Browser. And then you want to understand whether that mutation has any effect on uh, protein function. So you look up uh, in silico predictors such as Mutation Taster or CAD. Um, and then finally, uh, when you've got enough evidence to, to dive a little deeper, you go ahead and read the papers. And so you look up those papers through PubMed or through Google Scholar. And then you ultimately have to go and read those papers. And once you've done all that, then you can maybe confidently report out those in a patient report. So it's a pretty tedious uh, and involved process. What uh, QCI does, though, is it tries to streamline that process. It takes the raw data, the VCF file, and the metadata associated with um, those samples. Um, those VCF files uh, using QCI's uh, variant triaging capability can narrow down quickly from the millions down to the handful of variants. You then ask of these remaining variants how many of those have relationships to the phenotype of interest that I'm looking at. Um, and then from there, it generates a prioritized list of variants for you to dig into. And we present the evidence uh, at your fingertips so that you can quickly streamline and do your due diligence uh, and finally report out. So I'll talk a bit about how that process works in QCI today. So we leveraged that relationship in the knowledge base through the accumulation of uh, knowledge from various databases 
this is just a list of some of the databases that we have. Uh, we also apply clinical guidelines um, as well as silical predictors to the knowledge base in order to streamline that interpretation. We update the content on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Our guidelines are refreshed quarterly. We pull from over 40 different data sources. Um, we also do something else that no one else does, and which is that we have um, over 200 MD and PhD data curators who do nothing but read articles, scientific articles, on the order of several thousand articles a month. We then take information out of that articles, or those articles, and put it into the knowledge base. So things like, you know, what gene was mentioned, what evidence was uh, mentioned, what phenotype was mentioned, what are the relationship between those phenotypes and proteins and genes. All of that information is entered into the knowledge base, and those relationships are documented. And so we've been doing this for over 20 years. And so that's really the, the power of the knowledge base that has these relationships between all these biological entities, these biological terms that allow you to ask the question of these remaining variants, show me only those that have a relationship direct or indirect with the phenotypes of interest. As a result of this knowledge base, uh, we've been able to uh, compute with um, pretty high accuracy um, the interpretation of variants uh, based on um, the performance of expert committees. So here, this slide really um, has an example of how our computed classifications compare with an expert panel. Um, and this is an example of uh, BRCA mutations um, that are assessed by the Enigma committee, which is an expert panel. Um, you'll see that um, out of around uh, 6,000 mutations, um, the automatic classification uh, had 100% concordance uh, with about 81.7% of those 6,000 mutations. The ones that were discordant, 17.8% um, were you know, likely benign, benign, or pathogenic versus likely pathogenic. Um, and uh, you can see the sort of discrepancy on the uh, axis here. What's important to note is that um, the difference between, you know, um, how we classify benign versus how they classify likely benign and vice versa, um, those differences are fairly minimal because it won't really change um, medical management versus those, you know, pathogenic versus benign can alter uh, medical tr treatment. But these are considered sort of similar and consistent with medical treatment. And when you combine this with the high concordance rate, we have probably about 99.5% concordance with respect to clinical actionability. And so with a tool such as QCI, uh, we were at close to you know 100% to concordance with how expert would have interpreted these uh, 6,000 BRCA mutations. Similarly, um, when we compared with myeloid malignancies, um, uh, a study was um, was undertaken to compare how automated how our automated classification compared to their own in-house um, manual classification. And out of around uh, 747 uh, somatic alterations, we had 87% uh, concordance with uh, their in-house classifications. And so this matrix here. Uh, compares how we computed versus how they comp uh, manually curated uh, those classifications. And 
this uh, diagonal represents the concordance and the green represents 100% concordance. Um, what's interesting to note was that there was very there was zero times where we had significant discordance where they classified as pathogenic and we classified as benign. Um, instead, there were some sort of outliers um, that were similar, um, but it's important to note that uh, we were, uh, for the most part, very concordant and uh, absolutely very little concordant, uh, discordant with their manual curation. And so the conclusion is that there was no strong discordant calls um, between pathogenic and benign. Uh, a lot of these discrepancies that you see here, uh, the 59, the 4, and the 32 was due to scarce public data and in-house knowledge that we didn't have access to, for example. Um, and it's um, we they conclude that our automated approach seemed to be more cautious, um, more uh, conservative uh, compared to theirs. Um, but this really helped in the standardization of their process and, and streamline their process of interpretation. So with that background, I want to introduce the new uh, QCI interpret. Um, with this new release, there's a new workflow, which I'll go into. Uh, that includes um, a new feature to um, manage your sample inventory. There's a new feature now to uh, triage variants and prioritize them. Um, we still do the computation of the variant classification, um, and we compute combine uh, analytical tools with expert curated knowledge. So with that, I'll jump into the demo. Here you see uh, when you log into QCI, uh, you log into a, a test list here. Um, and new with this release is this notion of a sample list. So this is your sort of sample inventory. The test list is all the, the list of all the tests that you've ever done. Um, to create a test, you simply click a create test button. Uh, in the sample list here is, like I said, all the samples. To upload samples is very straightforward. You can click on the upload sample. You can then click and drag uh, samples to your um, to to upload to your system. And here I'm uploading an exome. The system will automatically take the file name and name the sample name here, but you can override that if you want. And then click to submit to upload. And here we're just uploading a, a full exome in real time here. And once it's uploaded, the system then validates that VCF to make sure that that VCF is, uh, has all the necessary fields. Um, and so is a valid VCF file as opposed to just an empty VCF file. And then at this point, you can upload more files or you can click done. And you can do that um, uh, to upload all your samples here. When you're ready to create a test, you just go ahead and click create test. You have to determine whether uh, you want to go ahead and create a somatic test or hereditary test. Um, it's it all, both of these come with your QCI um, subscription. I'm going to go ahead and do a hereditary test. Um, if I want to, um, the, the test profile is essentially a list of all your test menu items. So I'm going to do a whole exome testing, but this is fully customizable. Um, 
These are the sort of filter criteria that you use to filter, and I'll talk a bit about what those filter criteria are, but I'm just going to go with the standard rare disease filter, a test product code that your lab uses, the date of the test. And then at this point, I can um, choose from my inventory or upload samples if I haven't uploaded yet. So I'm going to choose from my inventory. And I'm going to look at um, the affected daughter as the proband, um, the mother, and the father. And at this point, I also want to uh, attach the relationship between um, the control and the proband, as well as associated phenotypes. Um, and here's just an example of what that file will look like, where you've got the relationship and some of the um, that's defined in this uh, file type, this JSON file. Um, you can use that as a template to edit. We, or you can just upload, and if you've edited such a file, you can go ahead and choose the updated file. So I've got here. Now I can add additional uh, phenotype, the patient symptoms, and it can be through an HPO file a list of HPO terms. I'll apply that to this particular case. And then continue. If I want to have this patient information as part of the uh, header for the test report, I can put that information here. Again, other metadata that's associated with the uh, test report. And that's how you create a test analysis. Then you can go back to the test page and look at the results. So uh, it's running right now, but I'll take a look at the same one that I opened, that I created earlier. And really in a matter of minutes, uh, the entire exome um, trio is analyzed and you've got this prioritized list of 137 variants out of the uh, starting of around 42,000 uh, mutations across those three uh, samples. And so you can see that uh, I've applied a confidence filter, and essentially what that confidence filter is is uh, saying that it's only looking for variants that have a, um, uh, looking at only variants that have a, a quality score of 20 or above. Um, common variants, we're only looking at only ver rare variants, um, no greater than 1% than across all of these different uh, databases. Um, looking at variants that are um, predicted uh, with a loss of function for, uh, due to frame shift, missense, and so forth. And so this is a way that you can quickly know what um, criteria was used in order to filter out these mutations. Um, so these are ranked based on um, how well they match with the phenotype. And so I uploaded five HPO terms. And it showed me that this particular mutation in this EP300 gene uh, matched most, in fact, all five of the HPO terms that I have. And so it's ranked highest 
So this looks interesting. If I uh, double click and drill into this one a little more, I can get a little more information as to what was the evidence used to classify this mutation as pathogenic. And I can see that four criteria were triggered. Um, and here's the evidence for the PM6. If I click on that evidence, there is a paper in 2015 that talks about um, some phenotypic spectrum for this gene associated with this uh, syndrome. Um, this sentence here is a human readable sentence that's generated from the evidence in the knowledge base. And so in the knowledge base, it found this gene associated with this mutation uh, with these phenotypes. And so this is a one sentence summary of a nugget of knowledge contained in this paper that is relevant to this mutation that you're interested in. And this is unique because um, with this single sentence, you can directly understand uh, why this paper is, is important. And so just reading this allows you to decide whether you want to go ahead and read this paper or not. And so if you do, you just click on this and it goes into NCBI to pull up that paper and then you can access that full article if you have access to it. And so this makes it very easy for you to say, ah, you know, it triggered the PM6 uh, criteria. Let me go ahead and read this paper if it's, it's if it's relevant uh, and let me decide whether it really does trigger this or not. If it doesn't, I can X this out and when it's X'd out, it recomputes the classification uh, in the absence of this criteria. I can also look at the variant details and this gives me information. I can click here to jump out to NCBI to find out a little more about this mutation. And so this is a quick way to sort of, like I said, um, have the evidence at your fingertips. Um, if I'm not familiar with this gene, I can click on the gene reviews uh, to pull that information or go to genetics home reference to understand a little more about that particular gene. If my lab has seen this mutation before, I can uh, quickly look at some of the historical cases that have interpreted uh, this particular mutation. Uh, the effect on protein is useful. Um, here is a uh, a schematic of that particular protein. The, the blue bars here represent the various exons in it. This line represents this mutation on the second to last exon. And here are uh, these sort of lines. Uh, I don't know if you can see, but these lines represent uh, other mutations in the, date, in the knowledge base um, that are found in this particular gene. And you can see that in this particular gene, um, there's a few other mutations that are um, benign mutations that are in the knowledge base. Are there other clinical cases uh, of this particular uh, mutation and, and, and syndrome? And so we have uh, different other published cases, both from ClinVar and Cosmic. So here um, is that particular paper that talks about that particular mutation as a clinical case. And so you can click on these to jump out to get that information. Uh, it says that this particular mutation has been documented in HGMD. I can click on this and it will jump into HGMD Professional to get that information. And that's all part of uh, QCI. Rarity in the population. And uh, I can see that this is indeed very rare. It's not been found in Nomad, uh, the Exxon uh, variant server or 
in the allele frequency community. If I have the BAM files associated with the, the raw reads for this, I can uh, link this to the BAM file and sh have this shown up in the genome browser. So this workflow allows you to quickly um, curate that variant to do your due diligence uh, to give you confidence as to whether this variant is indeed um, reportable or not. And if it's reportable, you can go ahead and click the assessment to make it reportable. So that's the variant list table uh, and the prioritized list. If I didn't find a variant of interest here, I can just go, hmm, maybe somehow my stringency for uh, predicted deleterious might have been too strict and filtered out. So let me go ahead and see if I can find my variant at this level. And so you can go at different levels to see where your variant falls out. And if it falls out at a particular filter level, you can check to see what criteria was used. Now, you can't really um, edit those criteria because in a um, standard laboratory test, you don't want to be mucking around with the uh, SOPs. And so that's why these things are are read only. However, we do understand that uh, particularly in rare disease, you do need to have that flexibility in um, tweaking the um, criteria for filtering. And so if you're um, the lab director, you might have the ability to go in and, and uh, be flexible. So we, we allow you to create a new filter uh, strategy in order to do that, it creates a copy so you don't overwrite the existing one of that analysis. Then you can go in and play with that copy. And once you go in and play with, around with that copy, this gives you that granular control of those filter settings. Now I can say, well, you know, maybe, um, so now you'll, you'll notice that um, instead of the eyeball icon, you've got this pencil icon, meaning that you can go ahead and edit and you can move these filters up and down. You can add additional filters if you want and so forth. So I'm going to go ahead and maybe make it a little more stringent and say um, 0.5%. And so that's how you would change that. And if this you know, change looks like the one you want, you can go ahead and save that. Save that filter. And now when you <clears throat> create a new test, you can see that I have a new one called my new filter right here. So that's how you um, create these filters and, and, and reuse them. Um, something else I want to be able to sort of uh, talk, show you guys is um, that's new with this release. 
is this button. Uh, this allows you to export um, all the variants at the, the chosen uh, filter level. So I've chosen this genetic analysis filter level um, that's, that's highlighted in blue. So there's 819 variants. I can export that out as a text file to open up in Excel or into a VCF file if I want to use this as a gold standard uh, list of variants for validation. Uh, I can select all of these fields um, or some of these fields and export that out as a text file. Um, if it's too large of a, a list, what will end up happening is that it will send you an email with a link to download that file so that you're not sort of sitting in front of your browser waiting for this whole thing to, to generate. But this is a new feature that was introduced with the recent release of uh, QCI. So there you have that list of um, all those annotations with those 800 and so mutations. Also on the right here is um, all the view settings. So you can view based on, uh, on the various different views. So we have um, right now it's set to the phenotype driven ranking. And so that's why you're seeing this ranking, uh, but you can also look for just the de novo variants or the sex liquid variants. You can also um, put here uh, virtual panels, if you will. And so that is something that is completely customizable where you can set up your own virtual panels and have different views for them. You can choose to view only pathogenic or what is, whichever classifications or just cases or only those with cases and controls and so forth. So there's different various views that you can, um, uh, of the 800 and so that you have there. You can also sort by pathogenicity, by um, group by pathogenicity grouping by gene. So there's various ways of, of sorting that allows you to, um, depending on your workflow, uh, that allows you to quickly eyeball uh, interesting variants. Okay. So that's the application and some of the new features. Um, I want to finish up by saying that uh, I did show you the, the workflow, which is fairly manual in uploading samples and creating an analysis, but all of that could actually be automated. Uh, a lot of our larger customers uh, actually connect QCI into their uh, LIMS system so that uh, when the data comes off of the sequencer, um, those results are put into a LIMS and, and the metadata files are associated with the LIMS. Uh, that information in the VCF file can be sent to QCI through an API, an application programming interface, that then goes through uh, an auto setup of the analysis and kicks off the analysis and then um, generates a uh, test that's ready for review by the variant scientist or lab director. Once they've reviewed it, they can then um, publish the report, and that report then goes into the LIMS as well. So all of that can be completely automated 
in order to, to do all the stuff that I just showed you guys. So with that, I just want to quickly close up and say that, you know, QCI is really a platform that can um, be easily adoptable for labs that want to um, adopt the ACMG guidelines for interpretation um, for hereditary disease testing, but also we include the AMP-ASCO-CAP guidelines for somatic testing as well. Um, the interpret solution makes it uh, scalable. Uh, so that you can standardize and reproduce your NGS testing and reporting. Um, I hope I've, I've demonstrated that uh, when we compute those classifications, we make it fairly transparent as to how we came to that uh, conclusion, why we computed a variant as pathogenic or whatever likely pathogenic uh, by showing what evidence was used and which criteria was triggered. And then we make that evidence available at your fingertips to follow up on. And finally, uh, we do produce a, a report, a final report that's fully customizable that can be integrated with your LIMS system uh, to really streamline that interpretation workflow. Uh, really, it's a tool that enables faster analysis of results through a scalable uh, interpretation platform. And with that, um, I'm open to answering any questions you may have. Um, and that concludes this presentation. Thank you, Rupert, for that interesting presentation. Now we'll have time for a question and answer session with our speaker. Again, please use the chat box to submit your questions and we will answer them in the time remaining. So the first question we have is, what are the filtering options in this new release of QCII? And Rupert, just to double check if you are saying something, we can't hear you. Sorry. Um, yeah, so, sorry. Um, yeah, so we have um, four different filter options uh, at this release. We're planning on introducing a fifth filter option in December. But the, the, we have a, a confidence filter option, which really looks at the quality of uh, data coming off of the sequencers. So things like read depth, um, the FRED score, whether the, the variant has passed a uh, upstream pipeline um, pass uh, criteria, whether the mutations are found in a particularly noisy portion of the genome, that's what the confidence filter is. The common variance filter is really looking for rarity uh, of, those, uh, of those variants, so only search for variants of a certain threshold of rarity. Predicted deleterious is uh, based on um, uh, several criteria, whether it is based on uh, computed 
pathogenic, likely pathogenic, or, or so forth, or whether it's listed in HGMD, ClinVar, or CentOMD database, or uh, mutations that have uh, association with a gain or loss of a uh, gain of function as established by the literature. And this is a um, uh, Kaijin uh, unique feature because this is only done through our actual reading of the literature that we found a gain in function of this particular mutation uh, or whether it's uh, associated with gene fusion or inferred activity uh, in silico predictors or loss of function based on in silico predictors. Um, then there's uh, the biological context filter. Uh, again, this is a Kaijin unique feature. The biological context filter really allows you to enter any biological term, protein, gene, whatever, um, and it searches through the knowledge base for any association with these mutations and this biological term. So if I wanted to look for like kidney disorder, for example, um, I can say, find me any mutation of these, of these 590 mutations, find me any of those that have relationship with you know, acute kidney insufficiency uh, syndrome, or, and also maybe with a particular gene. And so you can type these things in. And you can ask, um, I want direct or even indirect relationships, one hop away relationship. So one degree of separation or two degrees of separation. So this allows you to, to sort of, you know, scrape the, bar the bottom of the bucket, if you will, to find any relationship, direct or indirect, uh, with these biological terms. So those are the four um, filters that we have available um, today. Uh, there will be a fifth one called the genetic analysis filter that will be coming out um, in December, and that allows you to filter by genotype and modes of inheritance. Okay, thank you. Our next question is, what are the necessary VCF fields? Can the program receive every VCF type above 4.0? Yeah, so we um, uh, so we accept um, I think canonical 4.1 and above. So uh, hold on, let me. So if I were to upload a sample list, so. Uh, uh, so we're VCF 4.x uh, compliant, and here's an uh, example of a 4.2 spec. But we really um, support anything 4.x and above. So things like uh, the ref is needed, um, genotype is, is desired information, um, the, you know, the ref and alt mutation, um, we even support um, copy number, uh, indels, uh, fusions, all of that. Um, of course, those are more relevant for um, somatic cases, but we do support those um, data types as well. Okay. Our next question is, is the analysis done locally or on a server? And if it's a server, where is the server located? Yeah, so this is all um, cloud-based um, because the knowledge is updated uh, so frequently. It doesn't. Um, it's not. It doesn't. 
it's not scalable in order to to make your local install be updated you know every week or every two weeks so this is a hosted um, uh, service uh, having said that, though, we do have data centers uh, spread out around the world. We have one in the U.S., we have one in the EU, one in Turkey, one in Japan, and one in China. And um, it seems we're always cropping up uh, new data centers. These data centers are not um, built on any commercial uh, cloud infrastructure, so it's not based on AWS, Google, or Microsoft Azure. It's it's Kaigen's own data center. So the relationship you have is directly with Kaigen versus you know through a third-party uh, cloud provider. Okay. Next question is, with IVA, could you share analysis with other users uh, such as, for example, if you wanted an analysis review. Yeah, so the way QCI works is um, you have a group of users in your um, institution, uh, in your organization. And once you uh, create the analysis, um, that analysis is uh, shared among your group of users. Um, that's a little different than IVA. Uh, the way IVA works is um, when you create an analysis, that analysis is only to you unless you explicitly share it with certain people. But QCI, um, what we found is um, the the audience for QCI tends to work collaboratively, and so we make uh, we make the default uh, sharing among the group of users. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Our next question is, can I make one analysis from two VCFs? For example, if I have Indels and SNBs in different files. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what I didn't show you was, um, uh, well, actually, let me, let, me, let me show you. So um, this mother uh, zip file here actually contains two VCF files. Um, and that's why this, this exome, uh, you'll see that it's actually parsing and verifying two different files. I believe, yeah, see, so it's got two of them. So um, you can absolutely have a zip file that contains SNV, Indel, uh, SV, and so forth as one file, and the system will know that um, it is all associated with one sample. Okay, great. Our next question is, uh, which genome browsers are allowed, for example, IGV? Yeah, so um, I think uh, I showed that um, it supports, we support IGV, so in order for that to happen, you have to have um, uh, IGV already open, pointing to your BAM and index file uh, already open on your machine. And then once you click on that, then um, it will open IGV. So I don't have IGV um, open with a BAM file for this particular case. But if I did, if I click on that link, it'll jump into IGV and, and render those, those pileups. We also have our, our own genome browser, um, which is in um, a Java-based um, browser that points to the so to the BAM and index file. So we have two ways that you can read it. 
Okay. Uh, next question is, can you handle pseudogenes? Uh, so we do... <clears throat> So we do uh, handle pseudogenes, but we also have this uh, ability to look at different transcripts, if you will. So um, this allows that flexibility for whether you want to look for a, you know, a mutation, you know, the, the model in a particular transcript, or if you want to look at pseudogenes. Okay. Our next question is, does QCIT show lab observations in previous classifications like QCII? Yes. So um, this variant directory feature, which was rolled out previously, um, um, you can look up uh, mutations from previous cases uh, by going to this variant directory uh, feature that we have in QCI. Now, um, it should be noted that um, QCII is different than QCIT. Um, QCII is the clinical um, uh, platform for clinical interpretation and reporting of clinical cases. Um, we also have another version of QCI called QCI Translational, which is meant for the translational research market. And that um, product um, doesn't have all the features of, QC, features of QCI because it is meant for research. So it won't have this uh, uh, variant directory because um, researchers, um, when we spoke to researchers, uh, sort of looking up historical cases has not been something that they're, uh, they've had a great need for. Um, they also don't have a need for reporting because they are doing research. And so uh, things like um, reporting and, and this sort of lookup is not available in the translational version of QCI. Okay, thank you. Next is, do you have a suggested filter for TMB calculation? Yeah, so um, we do. Uh, let me just go in here. So when you create a test, um, And I apologize, I'm not really a, um, a uh, semantic expert here. My, my colleague Beata is more of an expert there. Um, let me see if I have a sample here. Oops. Now you'll see the question here. Questions here are a little different um, than the hereditary, and that's part of the the wizard helping you uh, with this. But you'll see here you can um, put in information for MSI and TMB as well. And so that's where you would put that information um, here. And fill in those information and and do all of that stuff. And, and once you've created it, um, let me see if I have an open test that I can show. 
let's take a look at this one. So here I think this is a TSO 500 uh, panel somatic sample. And so you've got this uh, TMB and MSI information as well. And then the data that is uh, displayed for somatic is a little different than the hereditary ones. Um, so somatic one has things like treatment information, clinical trials. Um, also, uh, here, let me just go back and show you. So in addition to ACMG criteria, um, it also has the AMP-ASCO uh, CAP criteria. So you've got the tiering over here, and then the evidence supporting that tiering, um, as well as the ACMG classifications here. Um, but in addition to the, to the you know, variant details and laboratory observations, there's uh, treatment information that talks about um, sort of uh, uh, guideline uh, treatments as well as clinical trial information, um, prognostic outcomes, and then clinical cases. So all of that is um, in addition to the hereditary workflow. So this is something that is found only in the somatic workflow. As you can see, TMB score and so forth up here. So I hope that gives you some flavor of, of how we support somatic workflows and, and some of the key features of somatic. Okay. Um, and while we are on uh, kind of that general topic, is there a separate purchase license for the somatic versus hereditary versions of QCII? No. Um, once you buy a subscription to QCII, you get access to both workflows. Um, so we just, um, you know, charge by the number of tests, and it doesn't matter whether that test is hereditary or somatic. Okay. It should also be noted that, um, you know, even though um, a trio may consist of three samples, we charge you once for that trio analysis. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, we are reaching the end of our time. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Mm -hmm. Again, if you do have any more questions for Rupert, please feel free to enter them into the chat box. We've gotten quite a few questions in. If we're not able to answer your questions during this session today, we will follow up with you by email. Okay, so a couple final questions. Uh, mm -hmm. Can QCI interpret CT DNA sequences? Uh, CT DNA sequences? Uh, yes. I have to say I'm I'm unfamiliar with CT DNA sequences, so okay, we have to pass on that question. Uh, circulating DNA. Ah, uh, 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 okay. Got it. Okay. Um, yes. So things like liquid biopsy, we we do support, um, and we do have some customers that have been using it for that. So again, it's it's regardless of whether um, the source of the starting material, as long as you're able to reliably detect 
um, the mutations and generate a VCF file, we're able to, to, to handle that. Yes. Okay, great. And uh, thank you, Amal, for the clarification. Mm -hmm. um, last question that we'll have time for today is, is QCI a publicly available tool? Yes, it is. Uh, well, I mean, it's uh, available for purchase. Yes, it's available for anyone to purchase in that regard. Yes. Uh, however, you know, um, we do sell it um, really to uh, CAP and CLIA customers. Um, so folks who are doing clinical uh, testing uh, is really designed. Uh, that's what this product is designed for, for clinical testing. Uh, both here in the U.S. and uh, anywhere around the world. Okay, thank you, Rupert. Uh, with that, we are reaching the end of our time. So I want to thank everyone again for attending today's webinar on Is Your Clinical NGS Lab Evidence Powered? A step every genetic and molecular testing lab should be doing with sequencing data. I would also like to thank our speaker today, Rupert Yip, for joining us to present on the topic and help with answering the questions. So at this time, I'll go ahead and close the session. I hope everyone has a great rest of your day.